Hello, is this thing on? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Energy 101. We are the Digital Wildcatters. You're here with myself, Sydney. We've got Julie and Misty. And our guest of honor today is Dr. Peter Duncan from Microseismic. Hi there. And right before we got started, he told us that he is a frustrated professor at heart. So today we are his students and classes in session. And we will probably frustrate you with all of our questions. Yeah. <laughs> We're probably going <laughs> to give it more. We're going <laughs> to fail class. Uh, not at all. <laughs> But there is a test at the end of the oh, yeah. at the end of the show. I should have I should take notes. I yeah, know. <laughs> I don't want my phone. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us today. So, give us a little bit of your background, how you got into the industry, and how Microseismic came about. Wow, how long do you have? No, loaded question. <laughs> I know. So, actually, I am a geophysicist by training. My PhD is in geophysics, and I have been. A geophysicist my entire life and i mean that really my entire yeah. life when i went away to university a long time ago 1969 i knew i wanted to take science i didn't know what and i got introduced to geology and that really fascinated with me fascinated me and i went to work in newfoundland i'm canadian went to work in newfoundland on a a, a diamond drilling project hunting mm. for copper and during that summer i became the helper you know, the gopher on a, <laughs> yeah. on a geophysical crew that was doing induced polarization, not seismic, induced polarization, something that's not used in the oil business. And I loved it. It was treasure hunting with neat oh, toys. That. Yeah. And I went back to the university the next year. So I'm 18 years old. I went back to the university and I said, I want to be a geophysicist. <laughs> And the, the head of the department said, I know how to make you a geophysicist, and I've been one ever since. So I went on and I, I, I got a degree in geology, and then I went to grad school in geophysics. I went to work for Shell doing research in the mining industry. Actually, and during my undergraduate, worked underground in Sudbury as a wow. mine wow. geologist and a mine geophysicist. And went to work for Shell and did research, and I was in the mining end. And then Shell decided to get out of the mining business and retooled me as a seismologist in the oil and gas business. And I will tell you that seismology was the only geophysical discipline that I had zero experience. <laughs> Consequently, that yeah. must have been why Shell said, you are now yeah. a geophysicist, or rather a seismologist. So mm -hmm. I went to Shell School, which is Shell School. <laughs> Shell School, which is a really good school to go to, to for seismology in. And then just about that time, 3D seismic, which you might have heard of, was becoming kind of au courant. And I became the party chief on the first shell in the world, first shell 3D program offshore Nova wow. Scotia. And that was a, a great experience. And what it led to was me leaving Shell to go to work for a seismic contractor based here in Houston, who was trying to bring 3D seismic to the market. And I moved down to Houston, told my wife we'd move for three years. That was in 1986, and we're still here. I was going to say, let me guess, you've been here ever since. Yeah. And so the, uh, what happened was we, I sort of brought the practice or helped this company develop their practice of 3D seismic. And then along the way, you know, Houston is such an entrepreneurial environment. I had the opportunity to move from doing seismic 
to actually becoming an oil company. And with yeah. two other guys, we took our knowledge of 3D seismic kind of at a major oil company level and founded a little company to do 3D seismic, not as a service company, but as an oil and gas company uh, in the market and, and partner with independents. Mm -hmm. And okay. we raised mm -hmm. some venture capital and then eventually took our company public. Wow. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I was about to ask how it went. Yeah, because well, sometimes we, it doesn't well, work. <laughs> so it went really well for a while. Uh, and then 1999 happened. And in 1999, you couldn't raise money for an oil and gas venture. And we started getting AFE'd out of all of our deals. And we drilled wells in places we had no business drilling oh, wells, no. Africa, yeah. and out in the deep water of the Gulf of Mexico. So anyway, the, we kind of crashed and burned. Yeah. We got bought out. And I went back from the buy side, that is being an oil and gas company, back into the technology side, um, still doing seismic. Uh, but I'd kind of, mm, what would I say? I wanted to find something new. I was maybe bored with 3D seismic yeah. and mm -hmm. wanted to do something different. And I actually ran into this professor, um, MacArthur Genius Grant fellow, a really smart guy, kind of off the wall, lived on the top of a mountain <laughs> up in Colorado. <laughs> and he had he through friends approached me and said, look, I've got some ideas about doing seismic exploration, but not using dynamite, not using vibrators, but something called passive seismic, where you just listen to the earth rather than send a sound in and get the reflection, but just listen to the earth. And from that, tell something about what's going on. Now you might listen to earthquakes happening somewhere far away, and from the sound that traverses the earth between the earthquake and where you put your geophone on the ground, you could tell something about the structure of the earth. We can do that. Or there might be activities of the engineer going on that you listen to how the earth's responding and be able to tell them something about whether they're doing good deed. So it might be that they're injecting waste fluid and you want to know where that's going, or it might be that they're fracking the rock, or it might be that they are drilling a well and you really want to know where that drill bit is. And so you could listen to hear the drill bit and then map where it's occurring. And so, so we started to pursue that. This mm -hmm. professor had some software and some intellectual property, which I gave him some stock in a new company mm -hmm. to found, and we founded Microseismic Inc. And what year was this? 2003. Okay. And we, we then went out and raised a little venture capital from some people that I knew from the oil business, started with friends and family, then some venture yeah. capital and then some more venture capital. Mm -hmm. And the first bit of money was just, well, does this science make any sense? Right. And we mm -hmm. went off to the field and tried a few things and it seemed to make sense. So then we raised a little bit more to see whether the science could be turned into a business. There's a big difference between yeah. the yeah. science. And, and so we raised a little bit more and the business started to take off and we were growing. In fact, what happened was the shale gale came along. And one of the things that shale people needed to do when they fracked the rock was know where the fracks were going. They had these very simple models for how the rock broke and how their wells when they fracked them reacted. And their models were all wrong. Uh -huh. <laughs> and 
how did they know their models were wrong? Well, the wells weren't behaving the way they thought mm -hmm. they should. And so they approached the industry, me and other people who were in this micro seismic or passive seismic business. And we started listening as they fracked. And as we listened, we were able to tell them that what was going on down there was a whole bunch different than they thought. And so the business took off. And all of a sudden, I didn't have any time for doing anything else except frack monitoring. And that became my principal business. And we grew so fast, exponentially, that we attracted private equity. And private equity came in and did a, a big investment in us in 2010. And we were on the way to going public again. And uh, I'm not supposed to bang on it. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah. To going public again. And then things started to turn turn in mm -hmm. the industry. And there were a couple of things that happened. Number one, in North America, uh, where um, most of our business was, the shale gale was largely a North American phenomena. And the engineers had started to get to the point where they began to understand the plays, or feel they did at any rate, and not need the frack monitoring as mm. much. Because they thought they could do it on their own. Yeah, they thought yeah. they understood things. So they, they'd figured out the formula. Or because mm -hmm. it's like already mapped, right? Or no? Well, no, every well is a little bit different. different. Okay. And um, if you've ever driven, driven along a road cut, you know if you watch the rocks, the rocks change yes. very fast. Yes. And if you're drilling a well that's two miles long, a horizontal mm. well that's two miles long, along that length, there can be a lot of change. Mm -hmm. But they'd begun to think that right, they right. knew it well enough. But the other thing that happened is that the whole oil business changed. Um, in the 2018, 2019 yeah. timeframe, the investors in the oil business started to say, well, they used to reward these oil companies for increasing reserves. Mm -hmm. You increase the reserves every year, your stock value is gonna stay up, and that's how we're going to recognize you as a viable company. They changed. And the investors started to say, no, what we want you to do is return money to the stakeholders, to the stockholders. And so the focus became not so much find new reserves as produce what you've got economically and make a profit. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, the oil companies, our clients, were rewarded for not spending money. Mm. And things like frack monitoring right. became discretionary expenditures, which they only made when they were in new areas or where something really bad happened yeah. to their well. <laughs> and because the engineer that thought they knew what was yeah, going on yeah. didn't. And, and so the frack monitoring business took a hit because yeah. of that change. And then COVID happened and we couldn't send crews to the field and right. nobody else could yeah. send crews to the field. Mm -hmm. And so our business, I mean, we went from 250 employees to five <gasps> wow. in 2020. And I had to lay off all That's of the, even rough. laid myself off. <laughs> Just kept five people who yeah. could keep the furnace on, right. you know, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but it's come back. Crews are going back out into the field. And you know, on the frack monitoring side, what happened was as the well spacing in these shale plays became smaller and smaller, there started to be interactions between the wells. Oh. So they'd be fracking well A, 
and well-be would get hit by that frack mm -hmm. and maybe damaged. Huh. Mm -hmm. We had clients who experienced having well bores sheared off. Well, I mean, it's one thing to drill a well and it not perform as well as you would like. Mm -hmm. It's a whole other thing if you drill a well and then the well next door shears it off and you lose it completely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to limit your career. So <laughs> yeah. the engineers started and our business began to grow again, but instead of helping people drill a better well, it was more helping people keep from having any kind of frack driven interaction that would be uh, negative right. mm -hmm. on their wells. I have a question about that. So prior to this, I mean, I would think if you're drilling a well, do people have some sort of idea of how close they can get and they just hoped they didn't hit it? Yes. The other well, they were just kind of like a drill and pray that it doesn't <laughs> well, actually, go bad. Actually, when they first started doing fracking, the phrase pump and pray was actually yeah. uh, was actually used by people to describe their yeah. approach to completing wells. So as the microseismic business got better, the one of the first products we would deliver is something called the stimulated reservoir volume, which would be based on the cloud of snap, crackle, pop mm -hmm. that we would hear as they crack the rock. We would draw a balloon around that and say, well, you're probably going to drain this much rock. And they would say, good. Well, then I'll put my other well right. twice that distance away and the two balloons will just right. kind of just touch. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's good. But yep. the problem is that that balloon size would vary down the length of the well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it would vary from rock tight to rock tight. Mm -hmm. It would vary from play to play. And so it wasn't very predictable. Well, I was mm -hmm. going to say, I feel like, I mean, as we know, these operations are expensive and it seems like something oh, yeah. not smart to guess at. It, it, <laughs> it, yes. And, and so, and I'm glad you said that because we would always go out with the value proposition look you're you're spending 10 to 20 million dollars yeah. drilling and completing a well what's a couple hundred thousand dollars to make sure you do it well right. Right. to do it right mm -hmm. yeah but when the industry changed to being value driven to being expense driven mm -hmm. and where the prevailing attitude was my well's doing good enough i don't need to spend a penny more on science then that that whole right. idea kind of went away Mm -hmm. until they started to lose wells because of the fracture-driven interaction. And lose money. Mm -hmm. And then they came back to us and mm -hmm. said, okay, well, now we need to start the wells. And it's neat because what we do is we actually monitor in real time. I mean, we're telling them results 10 minutes after they've started pumping. And we'll say, oops, we're seeing something that could be damaging to your well happening. You should curtail your pumping. Mm. Mm -hmm. decrease the rate you're pumping at, decrease the pressure that you're pumping at so that you can save your well. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where our frack monitoring business has gone to. More Instead of let's make a better well or let's find out what the well spacing is, more to how do I protect my wells in real time? Mm -hmm. Now, this kind of decreased business that happened in 2020, that gave us the opportunity to look at some of the other things that we had considered doing with passive seismic with our stethoscope in the past. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple of really neat 
bluebirds or black swans <laughs> happen to us that has allowed us to now stop being a one-trick pony, yeah. frack monitoring, and get into doing other kinds of business. So the first thing that happened is that a, a mining operator in Florida uh, came in, came to us and, and said, I've got an issue in Florida. There's a lot of karsting, that is limestone that gets dissolved out and forms a cave in the subsurface. And sometimes, well, you've probably been to the caverns over here near San Antonio or on the way to San Antonio. Mm -hmm. so that's a limestone cave. It gets eroded out by the groundwater. Mm -hmm. and the groundwater keeps seeping down into it from above. And often there will be a bit of a chimney open up to the surface. And when that chimney hits the surface, the ground falls in and it creates what we call a sinkhole. Well, in Miami, people have their houses falling yeah. into these oh, sinkholes okay. all yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. And Florida is just a great big carbonate platform. Well, this mm -hmm. group, <laughs> they had a, a an industrial facility, actually a waste disposal facility for one of their mining operations that had a bunch of acidic water sitting in a pond and a sinkhole opened up underneath it. And this acidic water went down into the potable oh water gosh. table. Oh. And it cost them nearly a hundred million dollars to fix this problem. What happens if so, it goes into the water table? Well, they have to <laughs> drill wells around and suck that water out and monitor and make sure that it doesn't get out into people's yards yeah. and oh all gosh. that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And they, they get put on notice by the government, by the Department of the Environment, that yeah. if you don't fix this, you're going to be out of business. Mm -hmm. and, and we're talking about a facility that generates more than a million dollars a day in profit. <laughs> Jeez. So they came to us and they said, we've tried every other geophysical yeah. technique. Is there something that this stethoscope of yours could help us with? And my, I said, don't know, but let's give it a shot. And we did. We went out and we planted our stethoscope around the facility and we started to listen. And sure enough, we started to hear snap, crackle, pop that sounded like it was bits falling into a hole. Oh, and we said, we think there might be something over there. They drilled into it. They found a hole. They filled it with cement and they prevented another environmental disaster. Oh, wow. So that gave us a little bit of a leg up. And actually that started in 2018 and developing that. And then the contract that came out of that helped us survive through 2020. Love mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And so then lately, I mean, so using exactly the same ideas lately, I'm sure you've heard of um, CO2, CCUS, Carbon oh, Capture, yeah. Utilization, and Storage. Yep. That's the buzzword yep. these days. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, and the government, the U.S. government, DOE, is spending a fortune on trying to get that industry going. Mm -hmm. And it's great because it enables the oil and gas business. If we can find a way to capture the CO2 mm -hmm. that's emitted during some of our hydrocarbon related uh, activities, <laughs> then it gives a longer lifespan to the hydrocarbon related activities. I like that <laughs> term, hydrocarbon related activities. So um, we had, the DOE is, is spending about two and a half billion dollars over five years on one aspect of that is, and that is the monitoring of the sequestration of the CO2. What does so, that mean? So yeah. they capture the CO2 and mm -hmm. when they capture the CO2, one of the things they can do is utilize it. They can utilize it for enhanced oil recovery or they can utilize it to make 
better cement. People are sticking CO2 in cement that makes stronger cement. They can utilize, there's one company I've seen that's making eyeglasses out of recycled CO2. That's really cool. But a lot of the CO2 is actually, or at least a lot of the thought about how we're going to deal with this CO2 is to stick it into saltwater aquifers at depth and just let it lie there for the rest of time. But if you drill in and stick it down there, you need to verify that it is going to stay there. Yeah. That when you put it in, you can imagine I'm going to stick a straw down and I'm going to start pumping into the ground. Well, the first thing you don't want to do is cause any earthquakes because sometimes if you pump fluids in the ground, it lubricates pre-existing mm-hmm. faults. Don't they do that with mm-hmm. the water? Yeah, waste? they do. They're creating earthquakes with yeah. with with uh, disposal some, wells. Yeah, there were some in Midland. Uh, uh, well, the West the Texas is now the most seismically active area in the United States. It used really? to be California. Wow. Yeah. It ain't California anymore. It's West Texas. Why? Because of this CO2 going in. Or not CO2, the water. wastewater. Yeah. And this is actually not something that you need to worry about because it's a well-understood engineering issue. And what you do is if you monitor, and we do, and you monitor and you start to see that there's seismic activity increasing that seems to be correlated with your pumping, you just reduce the rate of the pumping, the fluids leak off, and the chance for seismicity goes away. Um, It's like... it's like hydroplaning with your car. Mm. If you have fluid on top of a road and your car goes over it and it com- tries to compress the fluid, it reduces the friction on your wheels mm-hmm. and the tires skid. Well, if you would pump water into the subsurface and there are faults in there and those faults are pressed together, uh, you yeah. you force the water into those faults and they, and they the, all of a sudden they become <laughs> lubricated and they can slip. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if a big enough area gets lubricated, then it's a bigger seismic event. The bigger the area it's lubricated, the bigger the motion, the bigger the event, and the chance that you'll see something on the surface or that a church steeple will fall over or some somebody's dishes will fall off yeah. the wall, that sort yeah. of thing. So mm-hmm. it's exactly mm-hmm. the same with CO2. So the government has said, we want to make sure that you monitor when you're injecting the CO2 and you watch for any induced seismicity mm. so that if you start to see it, you can curtail or cut back on on the amount that you're injecting in order to be able to um, prevent any seismicity being felt at the surface, which would probably damage your social license to practice. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Now then, if you do start to get motion on faults, you may crack the seal when they Mm -hmm. stick it into the ground, just like in oil and gas reservoirs, there has to be a cap on the top, a seal keeps the CO2 in the ground. Because when you pump the CO2 in, it's lighter yeah. and it, it wants to rise to the surface yeah. and it rises up against this cap rock and then spreads out underneath it mm. like a mushroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to say mushroom cloud, but that's probably not very politic. It spreads <laughs> up like a mushroom against the seal. So if you were to get cracks in that, it could escape and then get up towards the surface. Now, the that could be not a good thing. And uh, so they want us to monitor them to make sure that the cap is maintained. And once again, if we hear a snap, crackle, pop, we identify where and they might drill down and just stick grout in the cat in the crack. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is when they put that CO2 in and it goes up against the cap rock and it spreads out like a mushroom cap, mm-hmm. 
you want to make sure that it doesn't go around the edges of your seal. Mm -hmm. So you have a geologic map of what this reservoir that you're sticking the CO2 in looks like. And as the CO2 expands, we can hear it microseismically. And if it starts to get out towards the edges of where that cap is, then you might have to move where you're mm -hmm. injecting. Right. Mm -hmm. So all of those things seem to be really well-posed problems for doing microseismic. And the DOE had announced that they were gonna spend two and a half billion dollars on technology development to monitor these kinds of things. And so we wrote to them and said, well, look, we're doing this stuff in Florida and it's exactly the same kind of right. problem and technology as you're asking to be deployed on CO2. Mm -hmm. And they gave us a grant. And oh, amazing. So we have taken this grant to re-engineer our technology that we're using in Florida. And then we got a second grant to now go deploy it. So the first was just funding of an engineering right. study. Mm -hmm. And then the second grant was to say, you can go in the field. So we're now actually talking to several different parties about their CO2 injection sites and having us go out and do the monitoring on it paid for by the DOE. That's awesome. So that's, cool. that's win, another win new business. Win-win for everyone. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 for sure. And then the other thing that's happened is you've probably heard of geothermal energy. Mm -hmm. and the, the Earth's core is the biggest nuclear reactor that we have anywhere yeah. near us. <laughs> the sun would be the next one, yeah. there, but it's a little farther away. But all that heat coming from the Earth's core leaks out towards the surface. And there are lots of people doing uh, harvesting of that heat for domestic purposes. Mm -hmm. You know, these are small scale things yeah. where you put pipes down in the ground and you have heat pumps and stuff like that. But a more exciting, at least more exciting to me, that's more industrial scale is what they call enhanced geothermal systems. So you drill down a little bit deeper into the really hot, dry rocks and you harvest the heat from them. The problem is these hot, dry rocks are very impermeable. They're granites for the most part mm -hmm. or volcanic Breaks rocks of some sort. Breaks all the tools. <laughs> well, and, and you can't put the fluid through it. Yeah. You need to, to harvest the heat. You need to flow mm. fluid through the rock and have a big enough surface area that you're gonna be able to harvest the heat from that rock fast enough to bring it back up to the surface and then at the surface use it to drive yeah. a turbine or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you need to do that at a rate that is commercial. That is, there has to be a, enough heat brought to the surface without cooling where you're getting the heat. Because if you cool it and then have to shut down for a while while it heats up again, well, that's not good. Mm -hmm. So the, the theory is this thing called enhanced geothermal systems, where they drill down into the subsurface, these impermeable hot rocks, and then they frack them. And they frack them just exactly like we did the shales for exactly the same reason. They had to frack the shales because they're impermeable. Right. The fluid doesn't flow through it. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the shale business, we frack those rocks so that the hydrocarbons would come out. In the enhanced geothermal, we frack the rocks so that the fluids will flow through it. And we're basically building radiators. Or if, if you've ever seen the, uh, electric, we don't have them around here much, but electric uh, radiators, they have all these little fins on them. Well, every one of those fins is like the frack that we're going to create in this 
batholith, this granite rock, and we're going to flow water through those little fins mm -hmm. and then bring the water back up to the surface. And we need to create a lot of surface area. Well, it's exactly the same technology as used in the shales. Now, people have known about doing enhanced geothermal for years, probably 40, 50 years. And there have been, I think, on the order of 14, maybe 15 enhanced geothermal projects in the world so far. Mm -hmm. That there seems, was, I, can't, I can't decide if that's low or high. It, it's, I would, I think it's low. Okay. Okay. And, but none of them have been economic. Yeah. Yikes. Not a one. Yeah. And bad things have happened, like in Basel, Switzerland in 2005 or six. They tried creating a batholith and they, they um, knocked a lot of dishes off the wall when they did the fracking. Mm, and thanks. the civil engineer who pulled the lever that he was put in jail for <gasps> a couple of days because you're creating earthquakes. I mean, oh. and so, and they've had a big project in Australia that ran for five years and just couldn't create enough heat economically mm -hmm. to compete with hydrocarbons. <laughs> And I think that's still the case, but what's happened, sort of a, a benefit of the oil and gas business collapsing has been that there's been a bunch of frack engineers who were looking for other things to do. Mm -hmm. uh, just like I've been as a monitoring looking for other things to do. And these frack engineers have this marvelous experience in, in fracking shales mm -hmm. over the last 20 years. And they started to look at what the enhanced geothermal people we're doing and saying, well, you've got it all wrong, guys. <laughs> We've learned how to yeah. do better than that. And so now there's a whole new generation mm -hmm. of enhanced geothermal projects starting up, uh, a couple in the States here. And what do they need to do? They need to monitor to see where those fracks mm -hmm. are and whether they're creating the right kind of a heat exchanger. Right. So that's another business opportunity for me to take I what I'd it. already developed and was already known by these shale fracking engineers and say, hey guys, remember me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can help you with this problem yeah. too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we now have four verticals, I right. think you called it, four verticals are sort of our frack monitoring business that helps people prevent frack-driven interactions between wells or negative frack-driven interactions. We have the Karst alert, which is looking for sinkholes before they're a sinkhole, right. mm -hmm. so that you can prevent it from becoming a sinkhole. Mm -hmm. We have the CO2 sequestration, which there isn't a lot of it going on right yet. Uh, actually, there's only, I think, three or four active wells in the mm -hmm. United States right now oh, wow. that are doing CO2 sequestration. Mm -hmm. All of them are being monitored by sort of experimental micro seismic yeah. businesses, but mm -hmm. we're going to make it a, a real business. And there's a market there, it's maybe a couple of years out. And then finally, there's this enhanced geothermal. Uh, we call that microthermal energy. That's our brand. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, I, I should say our, our, car, our, our CO2. We have a brand on that. It's called CO2 Secure. Oh, yeah. Isn't that cute? Yeah. And, then, and then we have microthermal energy where we are um, making ourselves available to help these engineers who are pursuing EGS. Have y'all had any geothermal? We've done a couple of yet? geothermal jobs, but not on EGS. Okay. We did some more conventional where we were tracking the fluids that they mm -hmm. were injecting to harvest the heat. 
but we're only now starting to get bids on projects that where they're actually going to frack. Right. Gotcha. Mm. Probably because it's just now starting it's up. It's just now mm-hmm. starting up. And yeah. yeah the, the, the company that's farthest ahead of this in the U.S. Uh, that's kind of come with some ex-Chevron people and just got funded last summer called Fervo. Fervo. Yeah. 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 Fervo. Mm-hmm. They're speaking at our conference. We have a geothermal panel okay. um, at our Fuse conference and sure. they're on it. And well, they're, they're ex-Chevron frack engineers, at least their their science, the, the their um, elevator pitches were ex-Chevron yeah. frack engineers who understand how to do this right. They've raised some money. And we've been talking to them about helping them monitor Amazing. their friends. Awesome. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I do have some questions about y'all's technology. You bet. I'm very curious because we did have an episode probably two episodes ago um, with Deborah Sacri. And she came on and told us, do you know her? Yep. It was really uh, cool because she yeah. worked in the 70s mm-hmm. in, the, in oil and gas. And it was really cool hearing her experience from... 70s and the technology that changed and sure. all yeah. that. It was cool. Sure. So it's yeah. cool hearing your perspective as well. Um, but she kind of walked us through 3D seismic. Mm-hmm. Um, and she told us about how they get it. Your typical, I forget, what do you, what do you call it? The like normal, um, like not micro seismic, what y'all do, but where you cause vibrations and it comes oh, oh, up. Sure, sure, sure. Reflection seismic, 3D reflection seismic. You, you use sound sources. Yes. It, mm-hmm. Like an ultrasound. Yes. Mm -hmm. So what is, is the way that you do it, where you call it your stethoscope, is that more accurate or is it just a different way to collect data? And second question, you say you listen to the data. Is that like it's being monitored in um, like maps or do you actually like listen (laughs) to the data? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay. Sure. So the, the, the sound, whether it's conventional seismic or what we're doing, it is sound, okay? So when I say we collect the data, it's listening because we're listening to a mm-hmm. mechanical thing that is sound. Now, the sounds that are used to image deep in the earth are too low frequency for you to hear. Hear it, okay. 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 <laughs> it, it, they're typically, seismic frequencies are typically in the range of of 10 to 100 hertz. Got it. And if you're really young and really good, you might hear down to 20 hertz. <laughs> I know, I was thinking too, I was like, is someone in a room? Right, headphones on, on like saying, well, we can hear but, the activity. But I will tell you, at, at one of the SEG conventions a few years ago, it's probably five or six years ago, we actually took our microseismic data, frac monitoring from three different plays, so it was the Barnett and I think the Eagleford and, and uh, the Utica Shale or something. Like that. And we scaled them up in frequency. So that is we made them higher frequency. Mm-hmm. And then we had on our booth where you could put on a set oh, of headphones so cool. and you could listen to it. And we asked you to identify which play it was. Oh, that's so that's cool. So and that is. if you got it right, uh, you, got, you a got a prize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we do listen. Now, okay. conventional seismic to micro seismic. Is it more accurate? No, but we're actually kind of listening for different things. Okay. Gotcha. So with conventional seismic, you're trying to map, make an image of, the of what the subsurface, subsurface looks like. Okay. Whereas in micro seismic, what we're listening for is places where there's been movement, movement. In the earth Got it. to Got map it. the location of a fault right, right, right. or something that's moving or a fluid front. 
So we're actually looking at different things mm -hmm. and we don't typically see what conventional seismic sees any more than they see what we see. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. That and, makes so much more yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. So there is a, a good way to think about it. It's a little bit technical, but when, when they set off a seismic event, uh, when they set off a dynamite charge, let's say, yeah. to do imaging, the sound wave goes down and it hits a reflector and it bounces back up. And that point, you can think of that point where it hit the reflector as now emitting a new sound. Mm. Okay, that sound mm -hmm. goes down, it bounces up. Well, that reflection point is really a new source. Mm -hmm. And with conventional seismic, they're mapping the continuity of those new sources. Okay. In our case, it actually is a source because it's something moving down there mm. that right. generates a sound and we capture it and we map where it came from. Right. So in that sense, they're actually really, really equivalent processes. Yeah. And the math is exactly the same. Okay. But the difference is with reflection seismic, they're setting the source up here and then they're looking for the secondary sources down there mm -hmm. that are that artificial. Right. Whereas we're looking for the natural sources the natural at depth source. and mm -hmm. we're just mapping where they look in. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. That makes Aww. sense. But we don't get any information about what's going on in between those right. natural sources. Whereas with reflection seismic, you are creating right. mm -hmm. that reflection point all along and then you can map it out as a continuity. Right. And what so when we're doing our work, we're looking for things that are kind of random points located in the subsurface that are discontinuous. Mm -hmm. Whereas in conventional seismic, they're looking for things that are continuous. So it's yeah. all, it's the flip side of the coin. Mm -hmm. Right. And people who interpret conventional seismic often have a hard time doing micro seismic yeah. because we're the noise yeah. that they got rid of before. <laughs> yeah. right. And what we're filtering out of our images is the signal that they used to use. Right. Mm -hmm. use. You're like uh, yin and yang. Yeah. We are definitely yin and yang. Do you need to use both whenever you're like, let's say fracking a well? Do you need the conventional Absolutely. at mm. first and then you need to monitor with Absolutely. micro? Absolutely. Because okay. if you didn't have the conventional at first, you wouldn't know where to put your well bore. Right. Right. So you put <laughs> the well bore and you drill the well bore into that image, like below the top of the table here, and you yeah. stick your well bore in there. Then you frack it. Well, and you have no seismic, idea where you're going. The seismic's yeah. not going to, the conventional seismic that you've already put into the can, that you've already collected, it's not going to see where you frack now. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to tell you when you're getting close to your yeah. neighboring well. That's right. Mm -hmm. So then we listen and we, but we start with the map that they've created and we then map all the little snap oh, okay, crackle okay, pops okay, okay. Cool. and mm -hmm. see whether it's confined within those layers or. And if it starts to go outside those layers, you know, if they start to frack up in something that is a, an aquifer that has water that they don't want to be involved with, then we tell them to stop. Mm -hmm. Do you guys work on site or is, it, or is the data like coming to you guys remotely? Uh, yes. All of the <laughs> So in the, a long time ago when we were first in the business, the data would typically be collected in the field. Mm -hmm put on to tape, brought back <laughs> to the processing center, and it might take us anywhere, well, worst cases, six months. Wow. To get an answer back to them. 
Well, how is that even worth it? Like, <laughs> yeah. How is that? Well, that's a really, really good question. <laughs> and, and it, but it was the best we could do. Right. Okay. And and this was true of 3D seismic. Back in the old days, 3D seismic, you would shoot a 3D seismic survey out in the ocean and you you might not get data for a year. So you just, do, you just yeah. don't, like, you don't have a project until that's finished. That's right. Jeez. So with us, we would go out and we'd collect the data in the field and then we'd um, bring it back to the shop and we'd process it. And the problem is, what are you going to do with knowing how to frack a well three months later? Knowing yeah. whether you fracked the well correctly. You want to know it right away yeah. so mm -hmm. that you know what to do differently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of market pressure for us to shorten that time mm -hmm. frame. And one of the things we had to do was then put our computers, because there's a lot of data, more data in microseismic than in conventional 3D, really. So we'd, we'd need to put our computers out in the field right. and process the data right there in the field in real time. And so we started doing that, oh, 2008, nine, around then. But geophysicists are expensive. And yeah. geophysicists of your generation don't want to go to the field. <laughs> Okay, they want to be able to work. So what we started to do actually is have command and control. So we, we couldn't bring the data back to our processing center through the cloud or mm -hmm. communications. Satellite communications were too expensive for that amount, that amount of data. But what we could do is, you know, put the command and control. And so we would have a satellite dish and the geophysicist would be sitting in our office or in their bedroom, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they would be processing the data remotely, and then the answers would be transmitted to our client. And we we took that to a pretty pretty um, good uh, level of application, to the extent well we actually had some work in China, and so we put our computers in a sea chest. Mm -hmm and sent it to China. We called it our China cabinet. And, we, <laughs> and, we, and it had a satellite dish on the top. And we actually did work for BP, where the well was being fracked in China. And our geophysicist who was doing the processing was here, but the processing was happening in China in right. the field. And then the answers would be sent to Houston to BP's. <laughs> and it was all happening in real time. And we actually had um, our chief geophysicist at the time was at a convention. And I think he was at a convention in Amsterdam. And he was sitting next to a BP geophysicist. And he said, Psst, buddy, you want to see our frack? And, he, <laughs> and he, he got out his iPad and he showed him in real time the frack that was going on in That's China. So That's cool. That is crazy. So nowadays, the amount of data that you can transmit mm -hmm. has gotten faster and faster where and in the field we're typically putting um 5g cells or even now experimenting with starlink which mm -hmm. is even mm -hmm. faster is yeah. that the um yeah it's the elon, elon Musk. Musk. yeah yeah and so <laughs> i was gonna say tesla and i'm like it's related but not correct <laughs> same idea yeah <laughs> So more and more, like in our other three verticals, the Karst Alert and the CO2 Secure and the EGS stuff, more and more of that, the data are actually being brought back over the cloud into mm -hmm. our shop. 
the conventional seismic, there's still a fair amount of that that we do at the edge with edge computing or mm. the conventional micro seismic, mm -hmm. the frac monitoring. It's probably about 50-50. Yeah. But within another couple of years, we probably won't be needing the edge computing. It's just we'll bring all the data back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. However, the geophysicists are still sitting in their bedroom and <laughs> communicating yeah. with the computers because they don't really care where the computers are or where the right. data is. Yeah. It can be anywhere now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. If I was a geophysicist, I'd want to go to the field. I just mm -hmm. want to go to the field in general. You're high. You're high. <laughs> Let me on. Let's talk. <laughs> I'm done. I feel like I've learned enough in our, we've done three, three seismic podcasts. I've Plus a, a geothermal. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Almost an expert. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Well, then I have a question for you. Oh, is this where the test comes this in? Is the test. I feel like we'd ace it. Yeah, I feel like I'm it sure always amazes me, like, as we keep talking about seismic and geothermal and stuff, I think, outside of your conventional oil and gas, it always amazes me, like, everything that goes on in the subsurface mm -hmm. and everything, all the moving parts at a well site and everything that goes into drilling a well, monitoring, it's insane it's very mm -hmm. cool it is yeah it's phenomenal technology mm -hmm. and and i think that's what got me interested in the beginning was the the marrying of something that is real the earth mm -hmm. yeah and you yeah. can imagine you can conceive of what the earth looks like down there and start with something in your mind but then the technologies allow you to actually see it mm -hmm. and 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 make a better and better image in the subsurface but it's not like you're dealing with atoms right and it's not like you're dealing with with galaxies that are hundreds of millions of light years away mm -hmm. it's something that you can actually hold in your mm -hmm. hand and shoot it is treasure hunting no matter yeah, whether we're is. looking mm -hmm. for lithium or copper or gold or oil and gas or or geothermal heat mm -hmm. this is treasure hunting yeah. yeah and the rewards for being good at it are pretty substantial yeah mm -hmm. yep. yeah no i i when we had Deborah on, I just told her how like unappreciated geologists, geophysicists, people who study the earth are because it's like you're an astronaut and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. Or you are, I don't know, an ocean, you study the ocean. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's so cool. But no one talks about like studying rocks, <laughs> the ground and our earth and it being actually really, really cool mm -hmm. because you're discovering things that are unseen exactly mm -hmm. uh, i think it's cool but i've always thought it was cool <laughs> yeah. but we we geologists and geophysicists we're not very social and so we don't do a very good job of of going out and evangelizing for our trade yeah yeah this is why you come mm -hmm. on podcast this yeah, is why you come exactly. on podcast That's i love right. it yeah. i actually i um my stepdad he is i think he was a geologist he would always give gifts like rocks. Yeah. <laughs> so I still have one he gave me. It's a really nice rock. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's a really nice rock. Really <laughs> nice rock. It's very, very heavy. But it was like our wedding gift. And it's like, I don't even know what to do with it. It's just a rock. But prop the door open. It's very cool. <laughs> yeah. It's like a bowl. Like I, I use it as a bowl for dog toys for a while. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a really nice rock. I just don't know what kind of was. I don't think I appreciated geology enough back then. I understand. Mm -hmm. I understand. And I, I, I mean, shoot, when I was starting out, when I told you I, I, first year I got interested in it and one of my first field trips, we went to a quarry and that quarry was often used for getting uh, black 
granite type rocks to make gravestones on. Uh. And there just happened to be one that had a fly in it. And it was a gravestone, but it had a name on it. And I picked it up and took it home as a sample. <laughs> and in, in university, uh, I lived in residence and, and uh, sort of had to bed with a desk at the end and my pillow, so my head was up against it. And I put that headstone. Oh my, oh my so gosh. when I would sleep, I'd be down underneath with this. <laughs> and it turned out, because it's a small community where I come from in New Brunswick, turned out my grandmother knew the person oh, whose no, name was on no. the headstone. Oh. <laughs> but Did you have to return it? Uh, no, actually, when I left the university, I left it in the... <laughs> Oh, perfect. In the library uh -huh. of that residence that I was living in. But the thing was, the point being that I really liked the rock. Right. And right. It was a pretty rock. And, <laughs> and so I took it home. So, and, uh, you know, but there's a certain amount of weirdness to that. Don't you think liking rocks enough that you mm -hmm. carry them home? <laughs> it's a little weird, but it's okay. I have a box that I've shipped around with me. And yeah. Moving from Eastern Canada to Western Canada and then down here. And it, it always gets moved around. My You're rock very box. heavy. My rock box. It's, rock yeah, box. it's heavy. I think my wife has thrown a lot of them out. Oh. Because yeah. it keeps getting lighter. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Do y'all have great. any other questions? I don't think mm -hmm. so. Let's mm -hmm. rapid fire. Yeah. Missy? Okay. Um, in your opinion, what is the biggest misconception in energy? In my opinion, the biggest misconception about our industry, the energy industry, mm -hmm. is that we don't care about the environment. Mm -hmm. And time and time again, when you go off into the papers and you hear people talk, energy, any energy creation is bad. Mm -hmm. because, and the only thing that we in the oil business or in the mining business or maybe more generally in the energy business, the only thing we care about is making money. And that is so untrue. What attracted me and most of my contemporaries, my peers into the industry is a love of the earth and nature and yeah. a desire to understand it better mm -hmm. and sure, to reap the benefits of it, but not destroy it. When, when I would when I was a student and I would go in the field, if, if we left a lunch bag, we failed the course, mm -hmm. you wow. know? And when I worked in the field doing field geology for Shell and International Nickel and other we took care of our environment and we, we, we policed the grounds mm -hmm. afterwards. And sure, we had to dig holes. And sure, there would be slag heaps and things like that. And sure, in the old days, maybe people weren't as careful or concerned or took care of things as they do, mm -hmm. but times have changed. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the general public appreciates that. And I think that's the biggest misconception is that we don't care about the earth. And in fact, we really do probably more than they do. Mm -hmm. yep. That was a great I answer. Know. That was we'll have to beautiful. Do you have an embarrassing story that has happened in, well, your, career? in your career? Oh, man. <laughs> Do I have an embarrassing? I probably have tons and tons of embarrassing stories. Give us your best one. <laughs> Ooh, you didn't prep me for this, so I'll have to think. Okay, I I'll, I'll tell you one that okay. still haunts me to Ooh. this day. I'm excited. 
uh, and it's it's not salacious. It's it's just a technical error that I made. So when when I was in, um, I guess probably I'd finished third year university as a geology geophysics student, but I was working underground in Sudbury at a, a little mine called the Little Stoby Mine, which is a copper, nickel, zinc, silver, whatever mine. And uh, I was there as a mine geologist for the summer. And this researcher, um, well, Sudbury is a, is a meteorite crater. Okay. okay, so a large meteor. It's it's the, I think it's the third or fourth largest meteorite crater that we know in the world. Wow! And what happened is this meteorite hit into the Earth, and it created cracks that go down and allowed the mantle or the molten part of the rock to come up into the Earth, and all of that molten lava contains the copper nickel zinc gold mm -hmm. that we mine and so it formed a bowl like what your dad your stepfather gave you but a big mm -hmm. and we're talking <laughs> tens 20 100 miles across but, oh, wow. but just a little bit bigger <laughs> all of the mines are along the edge of the bowl where these cracks came up so this professor back to my story the professor wanted to do some work on the meteorite impact to figure out the angle that the meteor mm -hmm. came in and all that. And so he needed to have samples that showed the dip, the attitude of these fractures in the earth. So he needed to know what their, what we call the strike, but the direction mm -hmm. north south and the dip, the inclination. And he asked if we could collect samples of these fractures and send him oriented samples. So they sent me with a bag and I went down into the mine. I was used to going down to the mine to collect samples of these particular fractures. And to collect the samples, you had to know the direction. So you'd mark with a marker on the side of the rock, the strike, the direction it was pointing. And then you were supposed to mark the dip so that you would know the inclination. Mm -hmm. I forgot to map the dips. Mm -hmm. And I spent a whole week gathering rocks, carrying them to the surface. And when my boss, the mine geologist, looked at it, he said, where's the dip? And I mean, I'm a third-year student. I should know better. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, now here's the embarrassing part. He said, well, we can't take the time to go do this again, so we'll just draw some dip lines on it. <laughs> so we just drew the dip lines on it, and we sent it off to this poor professor. Oh, no. Oh, no. Who probably... Has research. Yeah. Had, when he put his work all together, said, well, this doesn't make any sense yeah. whatsoever. He's like scratching his head like, what is wrong? I mean, maybe he even got fired. Oh, oh my God. Or oh my lost gosh. his grant, or this PhD student failed. Oh, and that was all my fault. That's pretty embarrassing. I hope he listens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's like, oh my gosh. That explains that, everything. Yeah. That explains everything. <laughs> That's a good one. That, that is, is a, a very one. technical. It's a very I'm picturing Oopsie. this person opening that, yeah. like having the rocks and just being like, 
This well, is what no, it would take him a while to figure it out. Yeah. It would take him a while. He'd have yeah, to plot it, it all out. Yeah, because it would look like it, it was It would look right. real. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And that that just... That. Did y'all try to like, with the dips, did you try to like... Best we could. <laughs> yeah, best we could. But it was pretty much uh, a cluster. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and I, I will tell you, seriously, I still on occasion wake up at night and say... Oh, that was a terrible thing I did. Oh, that <laughs> <awesome>. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. Yeah, you want to wrap us up? Like, yes, thank you. Yes, thank you for coming on. Mm-hmm. We, I love this episode. Mm-hmm. I enjoy all the geology talk, even though most people think it's boring. I think y'all are really cool. <laughs> <laughs> And no, we really appreciate you coming on. And if people want to find you, where can they learn more? Are you on LinkedIn? I'm on LinkedIn. Peter, is it Peter M? Probably Peter M. Duncan or maybe just Peter Duncan. But I'm also, we have our our company website is microseismic.com. Easy enough. And on the website, there is a little button you can push. They may have hidden it now, but since the beginning, there's always been a button there that said, ask Peter. Oh, and, and you click on it, and it fires up an email that kind of, and you can even be anonymous. Oh wow, that's actually really cool. That is, cool. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you have to be out there for people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Yes, thank, um, thank you. you. Do we have any other announcements? Fuse, fuse. We actually will be talking about um, oil and gas technology enabling geothermal everywhere. So it goes right along with what you're doing. Um, we will also have a CCUS panel. Um, lots of good information. So Fuse is October 30 and 31st. Um, buy um, your tickets. Buy your tickets. Yep. I've already signed up. Have Yay! <laughs> we'll see you there. We'll see you there. See you there. All right. <laughs> Until next time. Bye.